Well, good morning, everybody. We've been taking a couple of steps in our, in our weeks, in the, in the past couple of weeks, to talk about what Jesus said on the cross when he declared that it is finished. And here's what he says in John 19. Uh, it's verses 28 through 30, if you want that reference for your own study. Um, I've kind of spliced them together because there's a piece in the middle. But he says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, by the way, that word is the same root as that word, right? All had been accomplished, Teleo, to fulfill the scripture said, it is finished, Teleo. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so what we've been doing is we've been talking about what it is that Jesus accomplished, what it is that Jesus did on that cross, what it is that Jesus knew had been accomplished in everything that he had set out to do. And so week one, we, we really pushed ourselves into this passage where it tells us that we have been given a clean conscience. And that was a really important uh, element, and, and I got a lot of feedback for that because people struggle with that part of their life. They might know in their head that something is true. They might believe that Jesus has set them free. But having that peace inside of our heart or that peace inside of our conscience or that peace of life that says, I don't have to worry about condemnation and guilt and shame all the time is a very uh, different matter. So we talked about the fact that Jesus had cleansed us and that he had given us a clean conscience in week one. In week two, we learned about uh, the fact that we, you and I, are um, together, we are the temple of the Spirit of God. And so with all the temple language and all the ideas that we see in the scripture about temple language, we are the place in which heaven meets earth. And what's really important about us as a royal priesthood, which we talked about last week, what's really important about us also being the temple is that this is, again, where God met with his people and the place from which his people were supposed to go out and bless the world and shape the world. And so this is what happened in the garden. And this is what was happening in the tabernacle as it went through the wilderness. This is what happened from the temple or was intended to happen from the temple in Jerusalem. And it is what's supposed to happen from the church going out. So we talked about this idea of being a temple. I, I issued a very important um, principle in that week about how to interpret the scripture. And I told you all that there's a difference between when the Bible is conveying information and when the Bible is interpreting information, right? What, what is the author's goal or what is the author's point in what they're writing? If we get ourselves caught up in thinking that everything that every biblical author was intending to do was to convey information, we, we run into all kinds of problems, we wonder what's happening here, why this seems different there. We, we, it just becomes a problem. We have a lot of challenges with the creation story. We have a lot of challenges with the flood stories. We have a lot of challenges with, with the Exodus mythology and how this all plays together, right? And so it becomes challenging. But when we understand it, that the author was actually trying to interpret something, it changes our, uh, it changes our way of looking at the text of Scripture, and we come to the right meaning. And so I shared with you in that week that Hebrews 9 serves as an interpretation of a declaration of a, of a temple structure and system that was uh, given a long time ago. Okay, And the details of it are not that important because we run into all the problems with manuscripts, discrepancies about a golden jar of incense, which 
early manuscripts didn't talk about or where the Septuagint differs from other things. It just, it becomes a convoluted mess. But if we understand that what's happening is that the author is trying to interpret to us, there was a temple and God made us that temple because Jesus did something that no human priest or high priest could ever do. And that is he entered the heavens. He entered the holy of holies, the biggest one, the the original copy, right? And we just see, or the original article, and we just see the copies of it, okay? I know that this is heady, weird stuff for you, but if you'll go back and listen to those weeks, you'll understand what I talked about. Uh, In the following, or in last week's message, we talked about being a royal priesthood. I shared with you this strange uh, practice in the ancient Near East called... um, Extispacy, and in this idea where people in the ancient times would would make sacrifices, and then they would they would divine the will of God through the sacrifice, through all the mess that is the sacrifice, and in some sense that is actually what we are for the world. God has written His law on our hearts, Jeremiah thirty one thirty three. God has written His law on our hearts, and we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We do this every day right? Every day. We do it in front of the world. We're supposed to do our good deeds before men so that they might glorify God, right? So that they might see those things and glorify God, okay? And so we are this sacrifice, and what the world is supposed to divine from that is the will of the God we claim to follow, right? If we love one another, the world says, oh, that's the will of that God, That's the will of the God that they say they serve. That's the will of this Jesus that has died and been crucified and risen from the dead. And so we talked about this idea of being a royal priesthood and how all of us, every day of our lives, is supposed to be a living sacrifice. And the key point that I made in that week, and I hope you'll remember it, is that the fruit of our lives should reveal the root of our lives, right? What we produce in this life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, should reveal the root, which is King Jesus. Okay? The root determines the fruit, but the fruit should reveal what the root is is all about. Okay? So this week, what I want to do is I want to take take another step in this. I want to talk about this passage that we find in Hebrews chapter 11, which is just fascinating to me. Um, And it is... This idea that we have been given something better. Here's what what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, 39 through 40. And all these things, uh, all these, talking about the saints of old, we'll get into that in just a second. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided, say it with me church, something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now that's a very, a very interesting idea there, that we have been given something that is better. And we're thinking, how does that work? Or what is that? If, if we're going to be honest, we want to know what that is, how that looks. And so today we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to try to understand that a little bit better. Now, as scholars are divided on these kinds of things, they, they talk about the fact that, that the us in this is, is undetermined, and so therefore, we can't determine the exact uh, essence of what is better, but that doesn't quite make sense in my head, and the reason it doesn't make sense is because no matter what the pronoun is, no matter who us is, whether it's all y'all, or it's the first fruits that were found in the first century, no matter what it is, uh, 
the, the better it seems can be determined. It, it seems it can be determined. And so I want to I wanna take a stab at that today and kind of look at that and see what your, what your thoughts are. I encourage you, I encourage you to study these things on your own. I get this comment a lot, and I got it again this morning, which was very fun to me. And uh, uh, a person came up to me, and, and she said, you know, I've been in the church for a long time, and you always give me new things to think about, <laughs> right? Last week, I was told that every time I'm up here preaching, they go, does the Bible say that? And then they have to go home and look it up. And I'm like, that's what you should do, right? That's what you should do. But if you find that it doesn't say that, you should also yell at me. I mean, in a nice way, but you should come and talk to me about those things, right? So the goal here is to see something what I think is a little bit bigger uh, for each one of us. I want to challenge you to see this differently. And if it is different for you, wrestle with it and talk to me about it. So Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 40, again, says that God has planned something better for us. But what is that something better? I want to go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to start working through this piece by piece so that we can understand it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, this is what God says. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Do you notice the two things that are happening here? We have confidence and we have full assurance of faith. Now, I know that life is crazy, and we don't always have full assurance of things. I actually think that we, I've learned this, too, that we should, probably, uh, we should probably express ourselves with a little less confidence than we think we have, okay? Because uh, our understanding is finite, and it needs to be expanded each and every day. But in this, there is something that we're supposed to have confidence in and something we're ha- to have full assurance of. Okay, And that is our faith in Jesus. He is the one, Jesus is the one, who entered the holy place through his blood and this new and living way he inaugurated through the veil of his flesh has given us life and given us access to the Father. Sincere hearts, draw us near, we should draw near with sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Can I get an Amen. Our hearts are clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So we're changed. There's a transformation. There's a cleansing. Verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast. So we have confidence. We have assurance of faith. We have holding fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. How many of you would say your faith wavers? Come on, be honest with me. Mine does at times with all kinds of weird little things, right? We don't always mean our, our faith in King Jesus, but there are times where we have to trust what he says, and we're like, did he say that? Is it real? Wait a second, I don't know. So sometimes our faith wavers, right? But we're supposed to have a confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is what? Faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, which pastors all across the country use over and over to tell you to come to church more often, Uh, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
So what we need to see here is that we're also called to have a full assurance. And this is going to tie into what was better for us, uh, what is better for us, what is unique to us and not the saints of old. Um, and, and you're going to see it, and you're going to see why I think you can have all the things that the author says. So right away, we're supposed to have a full assurance of faith in Jesus. So the writer goes on, verses 26 uh, through 30, I believe is what I have. But for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. By the way, this is where hell language comes from or another passage from which it comes, right? Uh, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now that line right there is actually in contrast with the next line and I'll talk about it in a second. But what I do want to point out here is that the writer of Hebrews is talking to who? He's talking to Christians, and how do I know he's talking to Christians? He includes himself in it. If we. He doesn't say if you idiots do it, right? He says if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what does he say about himself if he goes on sinning willfully? There no longer remains a sacrifice. Why? Because there's one sacrifice for all. King Jesus entered the heavenlies, and he did it once. That's it. It doesn't happen to have to happen over and over and over again. It doesn't happen year by year like the high priests of old. It happened once. And if you look at that sacrifice and you say, I don't trust it, there's a problem. There's a problem. So that full assurance issue is really important for us, isn't it? We can't just have that much assurance. It doesn't mean that we can't go, God, I don't understand. It doesn't mean that we can't say your, your ideas are confusing, Lord. <laughs> they are to me. I am finite. But we can press on. So who is the writer talking to? Christians. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice. Now, this parallel goes, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Why? Because if you're going to live by the law, you're going to die by it. And who can fulfill the law? Raise your hand. No. No, Jace. You can't. You're dead. Okay. So, because on the, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, all y'all sinned. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the parallel comes in the next verse. Go on to the next one, guys. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who trampled underfoot the Son of God? If you're condemned... By the testimony of two to three witnesses, when you don't follow the law of God, how much more if you actually walk on Jesus? Or rather, how much more if you don't trust in his work and what he has done for you? And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now please, read this with me. Track with me what's happening here. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who's he? Any Christian. Anyone who believes. Why do I know that? Because the writer just said it. The writer just said we. How much severe punishment do you think we, he, will deserve who has any person who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And look at what happened. Look at where this happens. And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Not will be. 
The blood of the covenant sets you apart. Now, how are you going to treat it? You're going to walk on it? You're going to spit on it? You're going to trample it underfoot? Hopefully not. Because why? Look at what comes next. He, by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. How many of you want to insult God? (laughs) Don't try it. It's not good. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. Why is he saying this? Why is he saying this? Because it's a truth. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? His people. Not random other people. His people. He will judge them. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay? I'm going to send you home today with that encouragement. Right? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Smile. It goes way better after this. Okay, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, who's he talking to? Christians. After you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So you can be a person who loses your home or your livelihood or whatever because you profess Jesus, or you might just be a partner with those who have had that happen. Paul goes to prison, other people didn't. It doesn't mean it's equal for all Christians to suffer. It's not, it's not equal across the board. But you are a sharer with those. This is why the Bible also says that we should, we should suffer with those who suffer and we should celebrate with those who celebrate. Why? Because we're a body. We're together in this. I don't think we think that all the time. I think we think that's them, this is me. But this is a corporate situation and we're going to see how important that is in just a second. So verse 33 goes on. Verse 34, I mean, goes on. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Who's on board? We should do this as a newcomer class, right? This will be awesome. Okay. Accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Who's he talking to, church? The only people who have a lasting possession. Us. This is really, really important. Then he goes on. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. What are you capable of doing? I can't hear you. Throwing away your confidence. Why why instruct people not to if they can't, right? Do not throw away your confidence. But what is confidence? What is full assurance? What are we talking about? trusting in Jesus. It's not about moral perfection. It's not about you earning your way to God. It's not about you being amazing because y'all ain't, right? It's not about that. It's about something different. It's about saying, I can't do this, but Jesus can. And you either trust that all the days of your life or you don't trust him. And this is a challenge, right? So therefore, do not throw away your confidence. And look look at the piece here. It's fascinating. Which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And we're not talking work salvation here. We're talking about trust that leads to action. Faith that has works that is therefore 
not dead. Amen? Verse 37 goes on. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. What are we living by, church? Faith. 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 Not moral perfection again. We are living by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's a pretty staggering line. How many of you love it when your parents said, I don't take pleasure in you? Hopefully you never heard that. Pretty sure Mark did, but I'm sure none of the, I'm just teasing you anyway. Okay, right? And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but, and this is where we start to take a turn, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, if we stopped there and we didn't read the rest of the Bible, we would look at it and say, There it is, Nathan. He says we're not people who shrink back, which means we can't shrink back, which means it's done. That's not at all what the author is writing because we don't keep reading, right? We're not of those means what, church? We're not among those. Our family is to be a family who does not shrink back. And what does chapter 11 go into? All those who never shrunk back. All those who said, you know what? I don't even understand where God's leading me right now, but I'm going to take the dive. I'm going to go for it in every step of the way, okay? To be among those who don't shrink back is to be among Hebrews 11 people. And to be those who have faith is to be among the Hebrews 11 people. It is not saying you can't lack faith. It is not saying you can't shrink back. Otherwise, this whole thing, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, makes no logical sense. There's no point in putting it in there. Right? So what can you do? You can shrink back. You can shrink back. But you're not of those people. Why? Because you're a people of faith. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Who's our assurance in, church? King Jesus. What did King Jesus do for us? He entered the Holy of Holies with his blood and his sacrifice once for all. It's done. No more. I don't need to add to it. I'm really grateful for that. I have assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. How many of here saw Jesus crucified? Exactly. Right? You didn't, but you have assurance of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. And then I love this. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. You remember that principle that I shared with you at the beginning and I shared two weeks ago? There's conveyance and there's interpretation. Do you want to know the the level of depth that the writer of Hebrews wanted to go into the creation story? Not like we want to go into it. He wanted to interpret it. And here's what he interpreted to say. By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God. There you go. I'm settled with that one. God made it because he said it. Isn't that awesome? Yet what do we do? We sit and fight. How did he make it? How did he make it? I want to know the exact details. Were you there? God told Job nobody was. Right? So we want that. But this is what he says. He says, God prepared everything. God's the one who sacrificed for you. God's the one who gave his son. God's the one who laid it down so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. So faith, again, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Go on to the next verse. 
What is our next verse? Sorry, guys. Are we jumping ahead? Since we have so great a cloud. Oh, that's chapter 12. I'll get there in just a second. So here's what I want you to understand. What follows after this is the, is the image of the people that you belong to, right? In chapter uh, 11, verses 4 through 7, we have the people before the flood. What did Noah do? Trusted God by faith. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19, we have Abraham and Sarah and their faith. What did they do? They trusted God for the future. Hebrews 11, did they trust him flawlessly? <laughs> nope, right? Definitely not. And neither of them did, right? We don't get to hang this all on Sarah, right? It's just like they just didn't trust him fully. Abraham and Sarah had faith. Hebrews 11, 20 through 22, that's the patriarch's faith. Jacob. And Israel, right? Or Jacob, Israel, right? All of this that's happening. Hebrews 11, 20 through 28. This is Moses' faith. What did he do? He trusted God. He had faith. Hebrews 11, 29 through 31. We had the Exodus generation. What did they do? They trusted God. Did they do it flawlessly? Not even close. It's not about, it's not about faulty faith at times. It's about trust him or don't trust him. Amen? It's about trust him or don't trust him. When the Bible utters the word, when Jesus utters the word, ye of little faith, watch the context of these things. Jesus is not telling people that they have a meter of faith and you were at a one and all you needed to do is get to a two and I would have done for you what you asked. That's not the way the Bible talks. What the Bible says is in that moment, in that issue, for that thing, you didn't trust me at all. Ye of little faith. You have a little faith. I can calm the waters. Did you trust me in that? Nope. We've got to be very careful, church, with the, with the idea that there's a faithometer in our life. Because it gets us into a lot of trouble, and we fight each other over it. And we say, the reason your healing hasn't come is because you didn't have enough faith. Maybe your healing isn't coming because God isn't doing it. Maybe your healing isn't coming because you don't trust him at all. I don't know which one that is, but it's not because you have a 1.5 of your faith. And you just need to get to 1.6. It's just not the case, right? Please be careful with how you treat other people when it comes to talks of faith. Because we condemn people when we don't even know it. Amen? You just kind of suck at your faith. So I guess that's why you're still sick. Nope. 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 Right? We've got to be very careful with this. So back to our passage in Hebrews 11, 39 through 40. There is something better for us. Something better for us. Here's what I think is happening. How, how easy is it for you to trust somebody when they've never proven anything? How easy is it for you to trust somebody when they've never proven anything? Huh? Not very easy? What do you think you would have done if God would have called you, like he did Abraham, out of his homeland without ever doing anything before? What do you think you would have done? You'd been like, no. <laughs> I'm going to hang out at home. I don't know what you're talking about. But Abraham walks after this. What do you think you would do if God said, build a boat, it's about to rain a lot? We have this 
romantic idea of old people of the faith. We think that walking by faith was easy for them. And that's stupid, <laughs> right? It's just dumb. I had a neighbor one time that said, man, I would, have, I, I would have greater faith in Jesus had I been like the disciples and been able to walk with him hand in hand. And my response was, have you read the New Testament? Right? These people struggled deeply. And then when he goes to the cross, they think they backed the wrong horse, right? They're like, well, <laughs> what happened here? See, when you're trusting a God that, or trusting someone that you haven't seen them come through, it's a pretty hard thing. All of the saints of old at some point put their trust in God blindly before they saw something. And they walked with him. But oddly enough, we have something better. And that is a God who says, I've done it. I've redeemed you. I've completely set you free. I've washed your conscience clean. And guess what? Now I'm asking you to obey me. Do you know how much easier that is? It's so much easier for me when I see somebody go, I've come through, I've come through, I've come through. Adam and Eve, the story to them was, I'm going to send one who will crush the serpent's head. And you're like, don't know, don't know what that means. Good, we're going to figure it out. But then God is asking them to follow him and trust him the rest of their life. The people before Christ are trusting in a Jesus to come and they never get to see it. This is why the passage of Scripture says, and they never received the promises. Isn't that staggering to you? And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, does that mean that God didn't come through in the little ways in their life? That doesn't mean that at all. Did God give Abraham and Sarah a child? Yes, he did. Did God actually send rain on the world and Noah was saved through the flood? Yes, these things happened, right? Were the people of Israel, were the Jewish people brought out of captivity in Egypt and brought into a land flowing with milk and honey? Did that happen? Yes, it did. God backed himself up every time. But we get to look on this differently. And that is precisely why Hebrews 11 also exists in the Bible. We get to look on all of God's faithfulness from the past and we have something better. By that testimony, by that cloud of witnesses, by that entire corpus of work, we get to walk with full assurance, church. Full assurance. How many stories do we need to be told before we go, okay, I trust you, Lord? How many times does God have to prove himself before we say, I surrender, I'm yours? How many times? Could you imagine a marriage or a relationship this way? Where your spouse did for you faithfully, repeatedly, constantly, and every day you were like, I just don't know if I can trust you. How long would that marriage work? Not very long unless that person has the most absurd amount of grace possible. It's amazing. We have all of this testimony set before us, and it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So the better thing that we have, quite honestly, is that what Jesus did completed the whole plan that he had promised since the beginning. And we got to see it. Or at least the first fruits, as is spoken in Ephesians, got to see it. And we get to be the byproduct of what God did. We are no longer a people who have to believe without seeing. 
We believe because we see. We believe because God has done great things. So what does it mean for the saints of old in this to be made perfect? That's the next line that's fascinating. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, Jesus, the fulfillment of every promise and a specific one, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What does it mean? You're like, well, Nathan, they trusted God, so if it's just a bunch of stories that help us trust God more, how is it that they need to be made perfect? Is that a good question? Is that a good question? It seems a reasonable question. Well, the reason why they are not made perfect or are made perfect with us is, number one, because salvation is corporate. This is another thing that Calvinists and many people who promote these ideas of predestination uh, wrongly miss in their interpretations of Scripture. Salvation is a corporate thing. God is saving his people. God is saving a, a, a nation, a royal priesthood. Isn't that amazing? Now, does that mean you're not individually seen by God? No, no. But God is saving a people. Amen? Very important. Salvation is corporate. It's people that are long dead and gone, and it is people that haven't yet lived. And everybody in between. Amen? Salvation is corporate. So they were made perfect because now salvation extends every way. Jesus alone makes being in the presence of God possible. That's how they're made perfect too. Did you know that they had to enter through a priest? Now we just have access. That is a something better. Amen? That is a clear something better. And then the final thing is to be perfect doesn't mean what we think it means. To be perfect means to be made complete. The Old Testament saints are made perfect in this, that now the story is finished. The story is finished because of you and I, because we are saved. We are set free through King Jesus. This is a very important piece. Thank you. You are a very awesome human being. Don't tell your wife I said that. Anyway, okay. She doesn't want you to get a big head. Okay. So we understand that this something better for us is multiple things. It is that we have a faith that gets to look back on all that God has ever done and we can trust with full assurance. It is a something better that says that God brought everything together in fullness, in completeness through King Jesus. It is a something better that says we now have immediate access to the Father. We get to run to God. They had to go through a high priest. We don't. We get to go direct, well, we get to go through Jesus, right? That's the point. So now I want to close this off by talking to you about Hebrews 12, 1 through, 1 through 3, I think. 1 through, yeah, 1 through 3. I want you to hear this. This is really important. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, what are we looking back on? All that God has ever done. Can we have a full assurance of faith? You should be able to. You have a lot of testimony. You have a lot of the substance of things you hope for. The substance is all there. It's been told you all your life. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. Who is what? The author and perfecter of faith. I need to explain this. 
because we get this one wrong too. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember the context. Jesus went into the Holy of Holies. He went into heaven. He made his sacrifice once for all. He has called us to walk in full assurance of faith. And he gave us a list of people that have done it before, but that we have been given something greater, immediate access to our God. And then inside of that, he says, I I not only want you to walk after me, you, unlike people in the past, have the author and perfecter of your faith working with you at all times. What does it mean for Jesus to author our faith and perfect our faith? It means nothing more than Jesus is the one who communicates the gospel. That is our faith. We heard the good news and we trust in him. That is how he authors our faith. He did not give some faith and others no faith. It is not the way the Bible is read. It is that he has given a message that you put your trust in. He is the author of your faith. He wrote the story. He is the perfecter of the faith, not that with you being faithless, he'll just overlook it, but that he will will work with you. He will challenge you. He will give you things in your life that refine your faith. How many of you have a better faith now after walking with the Lord for years than you did way back at the beginning? We've been talking a lot in our devotion series about this concept of the new birth, this moment in time that happens, but the progression of life is such a fascinating thing that I am a much more uh, faithful person than I was in the beginning because I understand. I'm growing, I'm maturing, I'm all these things. God is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And every day of your life, church, you have something that people back in the day, did not have. You have somebody that is constantly working and perfecting and tweaking and challenging you and calling you to greater things. This is a really important idea, okay? So what is Jesus accomplishing on the cross in this moment? He is accomplishing this moment that makes for something better for us than anybody else before. He finished the story. It literally means he finished the story. It is finished, Taleo. He's accomplished it. By the way, that last passage in Hebrews 12 of what he brings to completion, perfect, is the same word, teleo, right? It's finished, it's finished, it's perfect, it's perfect, it's complete, it's complete. God is bringing us to completion. Next week, we're going to look at a little bit of what that looks like because I don't think a pastor has the right to talk about these things and not take sin seriously. So I know what everybody's thinking. They're like, that's the week I'm going to go on vacation. But, but, I, but I do challenge you, I do challenge you to be here next week because although we are not saved by our works, although we are called to full assurance and trust in God, we are still called and beckoned to holiness and righteousness. Did you know that? You're called to serve him and to love him and to honor him and to adore him and to do all the things that he asks you to do. And guess what? If we really have David's heart and we understand this fully, we'll see that it's an actual joy to do it. It's a joy to do it because his way is right. His way is full. His way is better. Amen? So again, what Jesus has accomplished for you today as the kids enter, what Jesus has accomplished for you today What he has finished for each and every one of us is he has authored and he is perfecting your faith, but he finished the story. He finished the story. 
There's no more to add to it. He wins. Amen?